on us so many kindnesses and blessings. And there is ringing in our ears and, and I trust in our hearts these wonderful words of Jesus that we need not be afraid for it is your good pleasure to give us your kingdom. Father, what does that mean? It is so big and so massive. But in Jesus, that is what you have done. And so we give you thanks and we return this little bit of what you have given to us back to you so that these glad tidings of this great gospel might be heard here and even to the ends of the earth. Bless them to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Please uh, turn with me again to Romans chapter 12. You've had a week break from it. But we're coming back to it, and as you're turning there, let me just say that there are, there are a few passages in this letter that warrant the kind of detailed attention that we're giving to this. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is one of those passages that sets before us the basis, the foundation upon which we can have assurance of our forgiveness and cleansing and restoration to fellowship with the Father. Romans 5, the first couple of verses, is another of those passages that warrants really significant attention, and we spend a good bit of time on those verses. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've gained access by this grace into this faith in which we now stand, and that results in the hope of the glory of God. It's been a while since we were there, but we were there. And this is another of those passages that you just, at least I can't, just skim over. So read with me again in Romans chapter 12, these first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or if you remember, your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word, the word of God incarnate. And this word is a word that you have spoken and it directs us to you, for it is about you, all of it. But Lord, we need more than your word. You know this. We have some understanding of it. We need your spirit, so come and give the help that you alone by your spirit can give. Help us to understand, to take these things in, and by your grace, by the same spirit, work them out in our lives. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I have uh, three points this morning. Big surprise. And I'd like to start with point number three. And I'd like to get to point number three in a rather roundabout way. Here's point number three. Outcome. There's an outcome to all of this. And let's, let's get to this point, as I said, in a rather roundabout way. I, don't want, to encourage, I want to encourage you to play a game with me. Now, if, if we weren't at worship and if it were a much smaller group, we'd do this a little bit differently. I'd have a whiteboard and a marker, and I'd be ready to make notes. 
This is the game. It's a word association game. And the way it works is you close your eyes, and in just a second, I'm going to mention a word. And when I mention that word, I want you to keep in your mind the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word. Got it? Very easy game. Are you ready? Here's the word. Holiness. Now again, if we were in a different setting, I'd be writing your responses. You can open your eyes now. I'd be writing your responses on a whiteboard. And I've done this a number of times with folks. And it's interesting the range of responses that you get when you play word association and you mention the word holiness. Holiness. For some people, it conjures up images of monks, ascetics living in caves in the desert. For some people, it conjures up images of light and purity. For some people, it actually conjures up images of dread because they associate holiness with God and they think of Isaiah 6. And when they think of Isaiah 6, they think of Isaiah face to face with the holiness of God and his own cowering in fear before that majestic holiness. For other people, there are words like dour and drab and boring and even oppressive. Full range of things. And I don't know how many times I've played this game, but I can tell you that not one time has this word come into anybody's mind, of which I'm aware, when I mention the word holiness. And it is the word happy. Happy. Holiness and happiness seem to be polar opposites at an infinite remove from one another. Now, I don't know who wrote the little children's catechism that some of us have used with our kids. I know that the original children's catechism, which was written to introduce younger children to the shorter catechism, which is a kind of an introduction to the larger catechism, so you can graduate from one to the other. I know the first one was written in 1840, the one that we have and that we used and that we make available through our denomination is an abridgment of that as well as a revision of that 1840 catechism. And I don't know who wrote it, the original one, the revisions, the updatings, I don't know. But question 21 reads like this, in what condition did God make our first parents? And the answer is, he made them holy and happy. He made them holy and happy. And whoever it was who framed that question and came up with that answer most certainly understood that you do not, you cannot, and you will not have one without the other. So what's my third point? My third point is outcome. We're talking about change and transformation in this passage. We're talking about metamorphosis. We're talking about something that moves me 
ever closer in the direction of something. And what is that something into which is a word pregnant with theological meaning. To say that something is good is to say that it is something in which the God of all good takes delight and in which he finds pleasure. Is your, is your view of God a God which, which takes in the notion that he finds pleasure himself, he finds joy, he finds delight in things? The days of the creation were commented on by God, and God, as he looked at what he had made, declared those days to be good and even very good. He found delight in them. Or this this word acceptable, what does it mean? Well, it means literally something that is pleasing, something that in fact is well-pleasing. And what about this word perfect? I think as it lands in our ears, it sounds like some sort of moral perfection. It means, it means or it suggests or it has connotations of being, being conformed to some perfect standard of ethics or morality. But what it really means, it comes from the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S. And what it really means is whole or complete And what it takes up and what it captures is this idea that when God makes things, he makes them with purpose in view. And those things are not what they are designed to be until they are whole or until they are complete. What is the outcome of this transformation? That we might be gathered up into what is supremely good and delightful. What is supremely well-pleasing, not only to God, but to us. It is that we be gathered up into wholeness or completeness. It is that we be gathered up into the fulfillment of that for which we've been made. And my friends, that is all about happiness. That is all about your joy and your delight. And that is all about holiness. We could spend the next four hours talking about the fact that God who is supremely holy is supremely happy. Because he is supremely complete in himself. And he takes complete and total delight in himself. Father loving son, son loving father, Holy Spirit loving and delighting in the father and the son. The infinite, eternal, tri-personal God is the God of joy and happiness. Read Edwards. Not just the quotation that's in the bulletin. But struggle to read Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. 
the theologian of happiness before John Piper was. What's the outcome, my friends? The outcome is that we be transformed, that we would be happy. But the question is, how do we get there? Isn't that the question? Okay. If that's what we're being transformed into, if that's what this metamorphosis leads to, if that's what God is doing, if that's what he's about, well then how do we get there? Well, here are points one and two. First, you've got point three. That's where this thing is going. Disabuse yourselves of these visions and images of God as a curmudgeon, as a scowling, displeased, unhappy father. Your God is moving you in the direction of a joy, a blessedness, a delight, a happiness. You can't even begin to wrap your brain around. But how do you get there? Point number one, something has to happen to you. Something has to happen to you. And then second, you must do something. Something must be done to you, and you must do something. First, something must be done to you. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed. Folks, here is a foundational, fundamental, essential reality of the Christian life, of the real Christian gospel. You must be changed. And you do not have the capability within yourself to change yourself. I I know this doesn't land easily on the ears of people living in a culture where whether you go to a Christian bookstore or a secular bookstore, you can find shelves and racks and whole sections in those bookstores dedicated to self-actualization, self-help, self-realization, self-this, self-that, self-every-other-thing. Your problem is yourself. Thank you very much. You read my notes. The verb in this particular passage is in the passive voice. Be transformed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have this little exercise with you. I've had it before. It's been a couple of years, but we're going to have this little exercise again in language and how language works. And my friends, it is not so you can know for sure that I do actually sit in my study and I do read books and I do consult commentaries. That's not why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because this is a central, fundamental, foundational, essential reality of the Christian life. Something must happen to you. The verb is in the passive voice. Be transformed. It's also a present tense verb. It means right now, not tomorrow, not next week. It is also in a particular form that suggests it's not a one and done sort of thing. Passive voice, 
present tense, right now, and not a one-and-done thing. Be being transformed. Some of you some of you are familiar with Campus Crusade for Christ's little blue book, right? Which talks about the Holy Spirit. Got all kinds of issues with it. The one thing I don't have an issue with is the rendering of Ephesians 5.18, which says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not one and done, not point in time, ongoing. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing here. Be being transformed in the passive voice. What does passive voice mean? Well, here's the way it works. If a verb is in the active voice, the subject of the action is acting. Mike went to the store. Mike went to the store. Now, what's not clear from that particular verb and the way it's used What is not clear is who the beneficiary is of Mike going to the store. If I fill out the sentence and the sentence says Mike went to the store because Barb needed for him to go to the store because she needed orange juice or whatever, then you understand who the beneficiary is. If there's not those qualifying phrases, then you don't know who the beneficiary is. In the Greek language, there's a very interesting voice, and it's called the middle voice. And when you use the middle voice, the subject of the action is the beneficiary of the action. So if the sentence, Mike went to the store, is in the middle voice, you understand that Mike went to the store for himself. He's the one acting, and he went in some way to benefit himself. This is in the passive voice. Be transformed. The subject of the action is being acted upon. It's in the passive, folks. That's what you need. That's what I need. I need to be acted upon. Not one and done, but continuously. I sat on the beach last night and reread several sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, two things that were striking to me about it. One, and this really surprises me, it strikes me that he doesn't pay very much attention to the passive voice of this verb. He goes immediately to the renewal of the mind, which is where we're going to get, but he doesn't spend much time at all on the passive voice of the verb. This idea that something has to happen to you. But what he does say, and what is brilliant in what he says, is this. If somebody comes to me and they're struggling with a particular temptation or a particular sin, I'm not interested in the first instance in talking about that. I'm interested and concerned in the first interest in, in the first place to talk about the person. Not the behavior, not the sin, not the temptation, not the thing that this person desperately wants to change. There's something that has to be discussed before you move on to talking about the particular problem. And the thing that needs to be discussed is you and me and the fact that I need in the first instance to be acted upon. I need to be changed. Folks, it's all over. It's all over the scriptures. 
this idea that I need to be acted upon. I was reading this last week, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 3. Listen to this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. And your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What does Paul want the Ephesians to know? He wants them to know the hope of their calling. He wants them to know that they are God's glorious inheritance. He wants them to know that the very which raised Jesus Christ from the dead is a power being directed at them. And what is the nexus between his desire and the outcome that he wants? He prays because he knows that if God does not act to give them a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge, they will never know that hope. They will never taste the sweetness of being God's very own inheritance, they will never comprehend the limitlessness of his power. He prays. He prays because God must act if those other things. Why would he pray if it were not utterly necessary for God to do something that I am powerless to do for myself? Let me just ask you, I'm asking myself this. How is my hope this morning? How is my apprehension of the fact that I, insignificant, inconsequential, one of over six billion people living on this planet, how is my apprehension of this fact, this reality, that I am God's glorious inheritance because of Jesus Christ? How is my apprehension of the fact that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is a power that is directed at me, to me, for me, being exercised, as Paul says later in these verses, being exercised over all men and all nations for my good? What's my apprehension of these things? Folks, if at some level there isn't a bit of a tingle in my soul, just a bit of a thrill. Then what I need to do and what we need to do is stop and pray that God would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and knowledge so that we might apprehend these things. Something has to happen to us, folks. Chapter 3. All of these passages warrant so much more For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. There he is in prayer. There he is praying again. Why does he pray? pray, Why do you pray? Because you recognize in your praying that you are utterly dependent upon God to do something. 
For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do we, Christ will never dwell in my heart through faith apart from the Spirit of God resident in my inner being, strengthening me according to the incalculable riches of God's glory. Paul goes on, wants Christ to dwell in their hearts so that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. What he's saying is, in my natural condition, apart from this work in my life, I don't have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Apart from God doing something, these rich, extraordinary, transcendent blessings for which Paul prays, I will never taste I will never taste them. Something has to happen to me. Something has to be done to me. Don't you find it striking that when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he doesn't say, look, I want these things for you, so read my letter again. I want these things for you. So, as a first order of business, go read Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. I want these things for you. So, as a first order of business, go read John Piper's Desiring God. The first thing he does is pray. Pray that God, by his Spirit, will do in us what we cannot do in ourselves, what I cannot do for you, what no one else can do, only Jesus. Every Sunday morning, before I preach, there is in the bulletin a prayer for illumination. Do you know why that is? Some of you do. Some of you have forgotten. Let me tell us all. That prayer is there because if the Spirit does not come in some form or fashion, in some way to assist and help in the preaching of this Word of God, it is a dumb show. It is a dumb show. And we can walk out and two or three of you will say at the end of the service, gee, that was a great sermon. And I'll respond with words that Charles Haddon Spurgeon responded to some woman with when he was commended for a particular sermon. She said, Mr. Spurgeon, that was a great sermon. He said, I know, the devil just told me. (laughs) But nothing will come of it apart from the agency of the Spirit of God doing something that must be done. When you come on Sunday mornings, 
How do you come? Do you pray in the morning before you come? Do you pray Saturday night before you come? If the Spirit of God does not assist, it's all foolishness. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. God must do something. Now, point two, that does not mean that you are passive. That does not mean that there is nothing for you to do. I cannot change me. That is fundamental. I cannot bring order out of the chaos in my soul. I cannot fill up the emptiness of my own soul with a beauty that I create and construct. That is what is fundamentally the position, the opinion, and the wrong-headedness of the world around you. That somehow, out of our own minds and our own hearts, we're able to gin up something that will bring the kind of transformation for which we all long. I can't do that. I can't do it in me. I can't do it in you. But there is something for me to do. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing, renewing. It's the same word, the root word that is used in the Gospels to describe, to reflect Jesus' teaching that you can't take old wine and put it in new wineskins. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.18. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Right? Renew your minds. See, I mean, we have to stop right there, don't we? Don't we have to come before the Scriptures, under the authority of the Scriptures, listening to the Word of God, and simply say to God, you know, you're right. My mind is disordered. The way I think about things, the way I see things, the way I construct things, the way I interpret things, Fundamentally, I'm disordered. And what I need is to be renewed. My mind needs to be renewed. I need to see things truly, rightly. I have a mind. A mind is a good thing. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. The problem is that as I come into this world as a son of my first parents who were created in perfect righteousness and innocence, who were created holy and happy, but who rebelled, who rejected the guiding, directing, straight edge of the Word of God, and who became blind and hardened in their hearts, The problem is my mind is set at a particular angle and it's not a 90 degree angle. 
It's set at a bad angle and it needs to be rejiggered so that it cuts straight. My mind needs to be renewed, folks. God needs to act. God needs to transform. My mind needs to be renewed. And how does that happen? How does that renewal take place? Let me tell you how it doesn't take place. It doesn't take place through behavior modification. It doesn't take place by becoming moral and nice and polite. It doesn't become renewed by finding a new code of behavior, not in the first place. It doesn't become renewed by finding a new technique, a new habit for being a highly successful person. It doesn't come from being in an accountability group. It doesn't come from being in a support group. It doesn't come from fellowship gatherings. It doesn't come even from reading theology and knowing what you believe. It doesn't come from conferences and religious experiences. There may be a place for those things. But apart from the thing that is central and formative and shaping in the life of the church, behavior modification will produce Pharisees. Accountability groups will do little more than be places where people lie and whine. Fellowship gatherings will be nothing more than like-minded people reinforcing one another's like-mindedness. Reading theology and going to conferences or having spiritual experiences will do nothing more than make you proud and self-righteous. Are these things important? Are they valuable? Absolutely. But here's an illustration for you. They are like the mortar that holds bricks together. You need the mortar to hold the bricks in place. But if you don't have the bricks, you've got a pile of concrete And that's all. And what are the bricks? The bricks are the truths of the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, by the constant, relentless, persistent exposure to engagement with the illustration I like to use is that of pickling. If you put something in a solution intending to pickle it, it permeates that thing, it penetrates to the deepest parts of that thing, and it changes it. This change will never take place apart from the bricks which are the truths, the powerful, life-giving, life-changing truths of the Word of God. And let's be very clear about this. For a Hebrew person, and in the Bible, the mind is more than cognition. 
The mind is more than simply reading books of theology or even reading your Bible in order to stow away information in your head so the next time you're at a party of some kind or a fellowship dinner like this evening, you can impress people with what you know about the difference between justification and sanctification or infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. or any number of controversies that have afflicted the church across the centuries. For a Hebrew person, the mind and the heart are inseparable. It is not only about cognition. It is not less than that, but it is more than that. There is a primacy to the mind. That is, there is a primacy to cognition. You need to be thinking and rethinking and taking in information. But folks, you know what happens if all you do is take in information and it never gets below your chin? It is what I like to call spiritual constipation. And it is unpleasant. For the Hebrew person... For the Bible, the mind, and the heart are inseparable. Listen to these verses. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That is, as he calculates in his soul, it is that that defines him. Not what he has stored in his head, but what in the deep recesses of his heart and soul He calculates. Genesis 6-5, the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil continually. And did you catch the words that the apostle used in Ephesians 1? He prays that God would grant a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, having the eyes of their hearts hearts enlightened so that they might know what is the hope to which they have been called. Something has to happen to me, folks. And something has to happen to you. And there is something for me to do And there is something for you to do. And the thing for you to do and the thing for me to do. And I'll tell you in just a second how these two things converge. The something for you to do and the something for me to do is with relentlessness. Seek to know, to understand, to apprehend the truths of God. Jesus said, you will know the truth 
and the truth will make you free. Jesus said, John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. That is, make them holy. Move them in the direction. Set them apart for. Move them in the direction of conformity with everything that is good and acceptable, well-pleasing and complete and whole. Move them in that direction. How? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Here's how these things come together. When you're sick, you go see a doctor. You can't fix yourself. You can't do for yourself what you need to be done, what needs to be done. Unless you're Stephen Maturin in Master and Commander, the far side of the world, and you're a surgeon who is able to perform surgery on himself, which if you remember the film, he actually did, which is chronicled in the Chronicles of Her Majesty's Navy. But the likelihood that you're going to do that is pretty small. You get sick, you go to a physician. The physician says, submit to my care. I can make you well. I can't do it myself, but he can. And so the physician does what the physician needs to do, and the physician says, here, take this medicine. Take this medicine. You can't fix yourself without this medicine. In fact, as you take this medicine, isn't it the case that you're not really fixing yourself? The medicine is fixing you. The medicine is restoring you. The medicine is healing you under the oversight and supervision of the physician who knows best how to restore you. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Take the medicine. Take it wherever you can take it. Look, if someone said to you, I know how you can get better, what would you do? What would, you do? would you listen? Would you take the medicine? What's the practical application of this? Purely and simply. Take the medicine. Take it wherever you can. Take it whenever you can. Take it it as often as you can. You cannot overdose on this medicine. And let this medicine have its way in your soul. And as we'll see next week, you will find, as that happens, that your life will prove, will be a demonstration of the will of God. Over time, to be sure. But a demonstration of that which is good and well-pleasing and whole. And to use the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, your life will become never perfectly never completely in this life, but increasingly a fragrant aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, I beg you for your sake, take the medicine.
There is no substitute for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our minds are disordered, our hearts are disordered. We are, and you know, Lord Jesus, you know because you are here, you stand in the midst of us. I do not say this lightly. We are a mess. But thank you for your grace that we are far less the mess now than we used to be. And the day will come when we will no longer be the mess that we are. Would you show us your grace and favor? Would you have mercy upon us? Would you incline us, dispose us, compel us, constrain us day by day to take this sweet, life-changing medicine, the truth, the truth of your word. And may it do its work in our souls to the praise of your glorious name. In your name we ask this, amen.